Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I'm delighted to be joined today by Augusto Santos Silva, who is a veteran of Portuguese politics, um, uh, who's held many ministerial positions and since uh, 2015 has been Portugal's foreign minister. Minister de Augusto, uh, hello, warm welcome to you. Um, Portugal has held the EU's rotating presidency for the first half of this year. So as foreign minister, uh, you have been uh, uh, right in the heart of the action. Uh, we, we've seen progress on the Commission's uh, main goals on the uh, EU's twin priority transitions, green and digital, and Portugal held its social summit last month in advance uh, to advance the European pillar uh, of social rights. Your presidency slogan uh, was, if I'm right, time to deliver a fair, green, and digital recovery. So let me ask you, first of all, how many marks out of 10 would you give yourselves? I mean, how in concrete terms has the last six months made the EU fairer, greener, and more digitalized? Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. Well, this is a, a very tricky question because um, uh, you don't give marks to yourself. But uh, if I am allowed to give marks to my team, uh, people from the European Affairs uh, Department and people from our uh, permanent mission in uh, Brussels, uh, I would say that um, perhaps uh, seven out of 10, um, it's, um, we deserve it. At least this mark uh, they deserve. Because uh, as you very rightly uh, pointed out, our slogan, was very practical and pragmatic, time to deliver. And why did we choose this uh, slogan? Because uh, in our view, the main strategic decisions were made by the European leaders last year. Um, first in July, when uh, they decided uh, to launch the um, Recovery and Resilience Fund uh, this means adding to our regular multi-annual budget a program specifically um, targeting the need of fostering a recovery and preserving the internal market. So uh, this semester, uh, the, the need we had was to implement this decision. And second main decision taken by the European leaders uh, in the second semester of 2020 was to, uh, to join efforts in what uh, regarded the vaccination. The decision that uh, the European Commission will, would purchase vaccines for all of us, and then the vaccines were, were to be allocated to member states in a, a pro rata proportion considering their population. So again, uh, in this semester, it was time to 
deliver to roll out the vaccination process. Okay. If you had to identify any sort of single biggest achievement of the presidency, because I'm going to come on to the recovery fund and ask you about that in a moment. But if you had to think of one, what would be the biggest achievement of the presidency in your view? Well, um, the emphasis on the social dimension of the European right. integration. So the emphasis that uh, we need the social, the European social model to achieve the double transition. Uh, this idea is a very key one. Uh, we have to, to do the digital transformation of our industries and our public administration and of our education on one hand. And on the other hand, we have to, to, to do to achieve the uh, green transition of our economy uh, in terms of its uh, sustainability. Uh, and uh, of course, we have to uh, engage uh, more and more in the climate action and combating the climate uh, change. Uh, but for do, for, if, you, if we want to do this, we have to do it with the citizens. We cannot afford to uh, risk the, that uh, our citizens and our middle classes and our working class can feel that they are abandoned, that now we have uh, uh, priorities that uh, do not match their uh, um, anxiety, but also their uh, project. So the idea that uh, no one is to uh, be left behind, the idea that we have a triangle uh, in, uh, in uh, one phase, you have the digital transition. In another phase, you have the, the uh, green transition. But to support this, you need another phase, the, the social dimension of European integration. This idea was very hard of our presidency. I think what you're saying is really very interesting indeed. You know, for this reason, and it's personal to me, when I was trade commissioner, I was responsible for liberalizing trade and opening up markets. My colleague in the commission, the competition commissioner, was responsible for introducing greater competition uh, into Europe's uh, uh, markets. But that it was oftentimes the member states and their own national competencies that were responsible for evening out the social impacts of what we were doing in Brussels. So we were in a sense with the economic liberals, but we looked to member states to be more the, as it were, the social Democrats. But here was the problem. It was very difficult to get all the member states to act in a uniform, and I would say, and you possibly would say, social democratic way. And I saw in the social uh, summit uh, that a number of member states, for example, underline their own national competence on minimum wages. Now, do you think that uh, quite a few of our member states might, you know, support your agenda in theory, uh, but are nonetheless rather more indifferent to the EU itself taking a bigger role in driving that social agenda because they want to keep retain their own national competence? Yes, um, well, first of all, we have to recognize uh, the facts. And the fact is, to a certain extent, uh, the social uh, dimension is a competence 
of um, uh, member states. Uh, so if we think of uh, social security policies, uh, education policies, even health policies, they are, they are at the core of the competences of uh, a national uh, state. And I do understand why. Uh, I would not uh, like to, to let to the European Commission uh, the full responsibilities of um, the national governments in what uh, regards uh, education, uh, work policies, um, industrial relations, or um, and uh, health policy. And health policy. I mean, was it, was, it not a problem? was it not a feature of the pandemic that the Commission, that the EU itself, didn't have sufficient responsibility or a role in relation to health policy, which made things more difficult to coordinate? Well, uh, personally, I would uh, respond that uh, we need two things at the same time. First, to preserve the national responsibilities regarding these social policies in the broad sense of the word. And on the other hand, we need more coordination at European level. That's why the, the action plan for implementing the European pillar of social rights that uh, the European leaders decided in uh, the Porto summit was based on what we call, uh, you remember it uh, certainly, the method of open coordination. Yes. Uh, that's, we decide common targets. We decide common commitments. We decide what will be the metrics, the, the criteria through which we will assess our performance uh, regarding these objectives. We define the calendar, the timeline of these assessments, and then each member state is free to choose its path, but it's committed to uh, obtain the, 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 to reach the, the common objectives, the common targets that we have defined okay. together. Well, Augusta, let me ask you then about that precisely in relation to climate change and climate action. Do you think it's enough for the EU to determine the timeline and the destination? but not the means and the speed at which member states uh, uh, travel in that direction. Uh, I mean, th th there's now a, a fragile consensus, at least about long-term targets. And those targets of those benchmarks have now been agreed in the union. The Fit for 55 package is going to make uh, much more explicit how costs are going to be uh, shared. Um, but at the and at the same time, um, as the EU is trying to build international support for very ambitious emissions uh, uh, reduction, do you think that the that consensus within the EU about those targets uh, and about the uh, ambitious emission reduction uh, benchmarks that have been agreed is that consensus going to be sustained? Uh, do you think? But also, secondly, do you think it's enough to set the timelines and the targets and simply allow then the member states to go in their own, uh, to go in their own way? Well, um, I think that uh, uh, there are two different um, sort of things or problems. Um, in terms of uh, social policies, I do believe that the open coordination method 
is the earthquakes methodology and the, the only one that is allowed by the treaties. Uh, but regarding, uh, you have uh, in this, in that sense, in the open coordination method, you have a political commitment. Uh, you are politically committed to certain targets, to a certain timeline, and to certain uh, milestones. Uh, but in the case of the climate action, this is not enough. That's why uh, if you would ask me for the single, the single outcome of the Portuguese presidency, I would uh, respond with no doubt that this single accomplishment was the approval of the European climate law. And the targets, the timelines, the methods, the calendars, the resources, the obligations in this framework are not only political, but also legal. They are binding. Uh, so that's the difference. Um, if we want to reach our objectives, uh, carbon neutrality by 2050, uh, reduction of at least 56% uh, of our emissions by 2030, you have not only, you need not only to have political commitments, but also legally binding commitments. Yeah, you have legally binding commitments, but you also, I think you would agree, continue to have political differences amongst member states and their governments. I mean, do you think that we could see divisions uh, over, uh, over climate action and the agenda that's been agreed resurfacing amongst some of uh, the member states between, between those uh, in the West and the South, like yourselves and others in the center and the east of the union who have greater misgivings? Uh, yes, we could, but uh, we shouldn't because um, the, the objectives, the targets that we have defined represented the consensus, a minimum common denominator between uh, the member states. Some of us will be uh, quicker than the others and will be more ambitious, ambitious in what regards the, the final targets. But uh, I, I have to admit and to recognize that the, the starting points are completely different. For instance, Portugal uh, was one of the uh, European countries, one of the first European countries to uh, bet, to invest a lot, to choose the, the way of uh, the renewable uh, energies. And uh, the reason is very simple because we, we don't have gas, we don't have oil, we import all the oil and all the gas we use. That's of our interest to develop uh, as soon as we, as it is, as we can uh, our solar, our hydric, or our eolic uh, energy. Uh, uh, on uh, exactly the opposite happens with Poland. Poland uh, has um, a substantial um, commitment by now to uh, uh, carbon, to, to, to coal, to, to uh, fossil energy. So they have to, to do uh, a much more intensive effort than the one uh, Portugal needs to, to, to do. So the consensus that was defined uh, was also a balance 
between these different resources, different situations of the countries. Um, but uh, additionally, and unfortunately, we have now in Europe, in, within the European Union, very different views on uh, what Europe is, what Europe would, would be, uh, on what are the values and institutions that define uh, the European Union and also on uh, topics as climate, climate action and uh, many others. So uh, the diversity of Europe is very large. For a long time, it, uh, it has been one of, of its main resources, but now uh, beyond being a resource, it is also a source of problems and divergence among the member states. Let me, if I may, take you back to what you said a few minutes ago about the need to carry public opinion. I mean, not just the better off middle class public opinion, uh, but working class opinion and people who, you know, who don't find it easy to bear additional costs in their daily lives. Do you think that there is a danger in Europe that we are underestimating the potential public backlash that could arise when people realize what the implications are and the costs of the climate action that we've been agreed that, you know, just as France saw its uh, gilet jaune, uh, that we may see similar uh, ground swells and, uh, and revolts. Uh, in other in other European countries, I mean, how worried are you about carrying public opinion in these ambitious goals, as these cost implications become more and more apparent to people? Uh, well, I must say that uh, as a socialist, as a social democrat, I'm very concerned. Uh, we cannot um, have the risk of, of abandoning uh, our uh, people. Um, and, uh, for instance, in, in, in Portugal, the, the far right uh, valued for 10% in our last presidential election. So we have to be very careful. We have to speak to the people, uh, whatever are their political opinions, whatever uh, is the, their vote. But we have to speak to all and we have to encompass all groups, uh, all interests, in this, in this process. And, and for this, we have to be very clear in our political discourse. Um, the green transition and the digital transition are the drivers of um, the, the new economy. So they have to be uh, the main resources of a, an economic transformation besides being an economic recovery but an economic uh, transformation that has to create uh, employment, that has to create wealth and wealth to be redistributed um, among the people. So if you allow me for a, a certain minute for in a certain way, a, a partisan <laughs> political discourse, well, I, I think that redistribution is not I, I don't I don't mind at all because when I talked to Franz Timmermans uh, the other month we dwelled on this quite a lot 
uh, and he, like you, is a social democrat uh, and like me as well. Now, his response to me was, no, Peter, it's going to be a just transition. Uh, that we are going to make sure that, you know, we're not, uh, we're not taking from the poor and redistributing, you know, climate action, as it were, to the better off. We're going to make sure uh, that uh, this is not an onerous transition on people who can least afford uh, to bear its costs. But this does require quite a complex set of policies to make sure that our climate action interacts uh, with the justice of this transition uh, and the financial transfers that are needed to individuals, their families, uh, car owners, homeowners, who are going to have to carry out an enormous amount uh, of this transition. Do you really think we're up to that sophistication, that complexity of policy? Well, I do think that we have a chance, but uh, in order to understand that chance, we have to put at the same time to take uh, into consideration at the same time, the economic transformation. That's one of our motos, greening our economy, digitalizing our economy and uh, maintaining our technological edge or the recovering our technological head, edge on one side. And on the other hand, to uh, draw all the conclusions uh, that we need to draw from the idea of um, recovering or uh, enhancing the strategic autonomy of Europe. What does this mean? This, this means, uh, as well, a lot of opportunities for European industry, for uh, European uh, trade, for European services, because one of the most important lessons of the pandemic is that we cannot um, allow that uh, basic goods that we need um, are dependent on value chains that are far distant from us not only or mainly geographically, but institutionally. So we have at the same time to do this uh, economic and social transformation of Europe, but at the same time, we need to enhance Europe's autonomy. And this will mean that we'll, we will have to re-industrialize Europe. So for me, as a social democrat, these are not um, uh, antagonist uh, drivers, uh, okay. climate okay. action and the reindustrialization of the economy. So do you think that, and let's look at the economy for a moment, do you think that the recovery fund, uh, which is the centerpiece of the EU's plan to, you know, to, to secure its recovery in the short and, uh, and longer term, uh, 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 with its own resources uh, uh, decision, which has now been ratified by EU member states, do you think that that recovery fund and the economic path that it's, uh, uh, that it's taking should embrace, in a sense, protection of European industry so that Europe's economy and its industry becomes 
more self-reliant, um, more, more, more pro less dependent on global supply chains uh, and uh, uh, supply from other countries. Is that an important feature in your view? Yes, but uh, I would not use the verb to protect. I would use the verb to invest. I, I, don't, I don't mind international competition on the country. I think that international trade is one of the main drivers of the global growth of the economy and the progressive transformation of societies throughout the world. So I do praise uh, international trade. And I do want competition. Uh, competition, of course, on a level playing field, respecting the level playing field. But I, I would say that we have to reinforce the factors of European competition in the open global market. That's one of the main purposes of the recovery plan. To but invest also you just, also want, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but you also, you also want greater autonomy of European production. Yes. So tell me, who, who then sort of designs, um, <laughs> who, who is painting this canvas? The one that says, well, we're open to trade, uh, but, we, uh, but we, and we want to promote competition, but we also want to uh, develop European production. I mean, who who is painting this canvas for Europe? Well, uh, I think uh, that uh, the European Commission has its own responsibilities, and uh, at the end of the day, it is the European uh, Council that defines our strategy. But uh, I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Um, I, I want. Um, a stronger Europe in an open competition. Uh, in the, and for that purpose, we have to be smarter in uh, our uh, economic relation with third parties, not only with the United States, but uh, also and mainly with China. We cannot admit that we open our European uh, market to third parties and these third parties are closing their markets and their public procurement to uh, European uh, companies. Um, we have to, uh, to struggle for uh, a level playing field in our uh, trade relations with uh, uh, countries that are no more developing countries. And I'm speaking specifically of China and the needs we have to reform the WTO in order to address this new situation. And I uh, wish that uh, the European policies and the national policies of the member states can invest more in their own industry, in their own uh, infrastructures, in their own technologies, and in, in their own uh, ecosystems of innovation, innovation, uh, technology, and education. So I do think, um, referring to certain slogans that were very popular uh, within us, that we don't, uh, we 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 still need what we usually call the enabling state, the state that provides conditions for people and uh, companies to. Uh, 
to create uh, through important education systems, uh, social security systems, and infra public infrastructures. But at the same time, we we need this um, strategic role the state okay. can play. But in this case, we're talking not just about the state as say the government of portugal we're also talking about the state per the european commission yeah, so right. let me ask you from a portuguese point of view how much european commission interference would you welcome or tolerate uh, in in your use of the recovery funds uh, resources uh, and in striking that balance between openness competition and you know and European production. I mean, if the European Commission comes to you and says, look, I, I think you need to do things in a different way. I don't think you're emphasizing enough the uh, productivity uh, goals that uh, Portugal should be uh, pursuing. How much interference would you tolerate from the Commission in that context? Um, if I may answer by the practical example of Portugal, what we don't tolerate is what happened with uh, the assistant program with the troika between 2010 and 2015. at that time portugal not only portugal greece ireland cyprus and in a certain way uh, italy and spain were submitted to an assistant program uh, in the portuguese case a program that was rolled by imf ECB and the Commission. And the logic of that program was this one. We assessed your financial and budgetary situation. You need to do this and this and that. You have the money if you do what we want you to do. This know, is not... I know, I know you, 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 you push back against that sort of subordinate, yes. subordination and I understand why. But equally, Augusta, you know that there are Northern European member states who were very nervous about, you know, about whether the money would be spent uh, well and whether it really would be a disciplined uh, process. That's I mean, isn't it, isn't it reasonable that the Commission acts on their behalf as much as it does on your behalf? Of course. And that's why we don't refuse budgetary discipline. We don't refuse long-term assessments and um, uh, decisions. Um, and that's why the logic of the national recovery plans is very different from the logic of the assistant program I described. And this logic of the national recovery plans is the earthquake logic. Because what we are doing is uh, uh, asking, saying to the member states, you have a certain amount of money, both grants and uh, loans you can use to foster your recovery, your quick recovery. And in order to, um, to have your national plans approved, you need to match, you need to meet these three criteria, you have to uh, spend at least uh, 37% uh, in uh, climate um, action related uh, measures. 
you have to uh, allocate at least 30% to digitalization and you have to uh, respond to the country's specific recommendations. So you have to present a certain number of reforms. That said, it is your responsibility. It is the responsibility of your government, of your parliament, to design and to approve your national plan. The Commission will assess it, the Council will approve it, but it is not the, the official of the European Commission plus the official of the ECB plus the official of the International Monetary Fund that we that are going to prescribe to you to design instead of you the program you have to follow if you want the money. No, it is your government, your parliament that have to decide how are you going to implement your reforms what kind of investments you are doing, are you going okay. to do? But when I think of Portugal also, I think of, you know, a really large and vibrant, small and medium-sized enterprise sector. I mean, it represents such a, a vibrant and important part of your economy. And I also think, of, obviously, of your hospitality sector as well, because, as you know, until the British government stopped us, you know, Tens of thousands of Brits were flocking over to Portugal very recently to enjoy the delights of your hospitality sector. Uh, I have a proposal to I have a proposal <laughs> not to you, 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 can, you can come to do your holidays in Portugal, then you return no. to England, then you return to England, you choose some novels, yeah. For instance, those novels of Dickens or Lawrence that you had read a long yeah. time ago. And have a and happy quarantine. Yes, and you have <laughs> a useful quarantine. So you mean, <laughs> sorry, I you mean you. come to Portugal then and have a double holiday. Yeah, mean, of course. Holiday in Portugal, then the quarantine. First, uh, tell, then literature. Tell me, do you think the recovery fund, fund actually could have done more for SMEs? Do you think that this big picture um, frame of uh, the recovery fund is, is aiming off too much uh, the small and medium-sized enterprises of Portugal and other European countries? Well, I think that we, we, we needed to uh, arrange uh, different uh, parts in a coherent mosaic. So, uh, first of all, we need public investment in order to speed up the economic recovery. And uh, some uh, investments that um, we were uh, postponing concerning, for instance, um, smart mobility, uh, trains instead uh, of planes <laughs> can, can be done immediately. And this, of course, will be very important to speed up the recovery. Then you have to, to have the adequate incentives for small and medium enterprises. Our national plan um, is designed in order to, um, to underline the incentives to uh, joint ventures, to associations between uh, enterprises and the science and technology ecosystem. And then third, third element 
you have to profit from uh, this national plan to address also uh, this kind of um, uh, difficulties uh, or fragilities the pandemic has unveiled. I'm referring, of course, to uh, healthcare um, uh, yeah. or, uh, uh, and also to the kind of um, fragilities, vulnerabilities concerning, for instance, immigrants, concerning old people and concerning poorer communities that, uh, in a certain sense, the, 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 the pandemic has uh, unveiled. So uh, these three elements are all necess necessary. And uh, if you uh, think logically and uh, systemically, you can see that uh, this can be a very uh, good combination of uh, public investment in infrastructures, communications uh, and uh, material infrastructures, um, inno economic innovation and technical, technological adjustment, and the social dimension that I was saying that uh, is so important. Before we leave the economy, one other dimension, of course, is that of trade and the very difficult time we've had during the last four years in sparking trade disputes between um, the European Union and the United States. Um, the EU-US summit today uh, was, to see, was to see some welcome commitments to resolving some of these uh, disputes and there was also a proposal to create a trade and technology uh, council that would bring convergence in policy standards and thinking in relation to the main technology platforms and the emerging technologies like AI. Um, do you, are, are you encouraged by what you hear from the EU-US summit today? Has it gone in the right direction? Yes, I'm um, encouraged indeed. But I, I think we have to, I think that we have to think <laughs> with your help, with the help of many think tanks, with the help of the academia, in what will be in the next future, the commercial, the trade policy of the European Union. Uh, I'm quite worried about that. Um, first of all, because there are um, agreements that are being designed with, um, without us. <clears throat> For instance, if you think on uh, the economic regional comprehensive partnership that joined last November, China, Japan, Korea, uh, all the Asian, the Southeast um, countries, New Zealand and Australia, uh, there are uh, three uh, global players that uh, are missing in this arrangement, India, the European Union and the United States. And of course, neither uh, the European Union nor the United States can ignore this fact that uh, 14 countries of Asia, including China, have by now the right. most comprehensive economic agreement uh, ever designed. On the other hand, uh, there is a, a stalemate, a current stalemate in Europe concerning the ratification of our agreement with Mercosur countries. Um, 
and uh, in some member states and European Parliament and even in our national parliaments, um, many um, uh, stakeholders are saying that uh, uh, in order to have a trade agreement, you have to agree on any other non-commercial issue of your relationship. And I think this is quite dangerous for the trade policy of Europe. Well, I'm very interested you say that because when I was trade commissioner, I introduced to the commission, which was agreed by the commission. I introduced it to the council. It was agreed by the council. I introduced to the European parliament and it was agreed by the European parliament, uh, a global Europe strategy. Uh, which uh, uh, provided for the EU's economic engagement with the rest of the world, notably in Asia, but not only, but notably in Asia, uh, where I felt that the European Union was striking the right balance between openness and the ability to defend its own interests, but also our concentration on trade and commercial opportunities rather than a raft of other social and environmental uh, issues which frankly were very difficult to negotiate with third countries and oftentimes stood in the way of our agreements on trade now i feel that over the last decade we've 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 moved away from that equation and that sort of rather more balanced uh, equation and the emphasis is now more on um, pursuing social and environmental objectives at the expense of trade, including with Asia. You seem to be saying the same thing to me. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> For me, it's very simple. It's, it's simple to say, not to make, <laughs> but it's simple to say that um, any environmental or social element that harms the principle of level playing field must be addressed in a trade agreement. For instance, if you are trading with a country that uh, practices forced labor, of course, you have to put as a sine qua condition of your relationship with that country, the end, the, 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 the respect of that country for the the ILEO um, conventions. But uh, you cannot transform a trade agreement in um, uh, a kind of uh, passepartout, of, uh, comp absolutely comprehensive, absolutely global bilateral treaty uh, with uh, your uh, um, equivalent with, uh, with other, uh, with other uh, nations. Uh, because first of all, uh, this is not logic. Secondly, uh, at the end of the day, you are trading with yourself. And uh, we, uh, we want uh, a Europe that is open. And thirdly, if you allow me, because I'm a foreign minister, you cannot devaluate the geopolitical importance of trade. Um, uh, my, my first argument in favor of the ratification of the Mercosur agreement is a geopolitical one. That's the main instrument we have now to reinforce our relations with Latin America. Um, uh, 10 years or 20 years ago, 
the United States was the first trade uh, partner of Latin America, and then came Europe. Right now is China, then United States, then Europe. And you have to think geopolitically. First, you have to think, and then you have to think geopolitical. But isn't, Augusto, isn't the problem that, for example, in relation, or notably in relation to China, people are thinking too geopolitically, that they are now saying, look, okay, uh, China is the second biggest, soon to become biggest, certainly the biggest trading nation in the world, yet we must put issues of human rights and labor rights uh, before our economic interests uh, in, in Europe. Do, do you not think that, that we are in danger in Europe of getting almost out of balance uh, our position in relation to China. I mean, at the moment, that relationship is characterized by a mixture of partnership, competition, and rivalry. Do, do you not think that we are in danger of allowing the geopolitical rivalry to get in the way of uh, fair competition and where it's necessary, proper partnership with China? Yes, uh, well, it's a difficult but necessary balance. Of course, if we want to achieve as a world the 2050 uh, targets of uh, carbon neutrality, you have to count with China, not only with China, with China, with India, with Russia, with Mexico, with uh, Indonesia, and uh, uh, so forth. Um, and then uh, you have to balance your economic relationship with China. And I, I feel the need to this rebalancing. And at a certain, to a certain extent, the, the agreement on the protection of investment that was concluded in the last days of the German presidency last year is going in that direction, rebalancing our economic relation with China. And then we have to be firm and precise in our red lines concerning uh, the geopolitical relationship. Uh, we cannot admit that uh, the freedom of navigation uh, in uh, the South China Sea can be put in question. Uh, we have to be very firm uh, contesting the, um, the events or the evolution uh, in uh, Hong Kong uh, liberties. And of course, we have to be very clear, very um, cautious in what regards the, the relationship towards Taiwan. And of course, we cannot ignore the fact that uh, in the Xinjiang province, uh, it's happening a lot of violations of human rights. But, but, but Portugal is a country that welcomes foreign investment, including investment from China. I mean, are you, are you now in Portugal becoming more cautious about Chinese investment? I mean, are you more concerned about the strings or the risks uh, that come with that investment or the opinion uh, of other member states in the European Union about it? Well, uh, I must say that uh, in Portugal, we are very happy with uh, the presence and uh, the, the, the relevance of foreign investment in our economy, because uh, you perhaps know, China? 
including from China, including from China. But we are happy with the, the current um, hierarchy in the foreign investments. Uh, our main, in terms of nations, uh, our main foreign investor is uh, Germany. Then comes uh, France. Then, uh, well, uh, our economic integration with Spain is obvious. But um, then comes the, the United Kingdom, then comes uh, the, the United States, then Belgium or Italy, then China. And this is a, a quite good picture um, because we, we, we are, we are a, a nation open to trade and uh, for investment and we need capital. We have uh, abundant uh, resources in terms of human resources, but we have a lack of capital because of uh, the way we did the democratic transition and our peripheral position. So we need capital, we need know-how. And of course, the foreign investment is a very good driver of uh, technological transfer and uh, economic modernization. But again, in, uh, we, uh, we think that uh, the, the European integration uh, has to be also envisaged in terms, uh, in economic terms and in terms of our um, uh, relations um, and investment. And then comes our Atlantic environment. Uh, we are an Atlantic country, so we are very close to you, the British, and to the Americans. Let, let me ask you, let me ask you, in the final minutes that we have in our conversation, and time has just flown past. I rather, I'm rather sorry it's flown so quickly, but let me ask you both about the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, last of all. First of all, the US, you said in December that you hoped that Mr. Biden's election would usher in a new age of transatlantic uh, relations. We've now had the G7, we've had the NATO summit, and the US-EU summit today, um, all of it has gone in a way that would have been unimaginable under President uh, Trump. Is this new age that you referred to before now successfully emerging in your view? Yes, yes, uh, I would say um, yes, very firmly. Um, not only because there is um, a kind of um, realignment uh, between uh, the European Union and the United States, um, because um, um, in a certain way, uh, the United States are joining European Union in one, uh, in, in some of our main uh, um, uh, agendas. And uh, uh, last but not least, because this provides the room to uh, speak to each other on our divergences, on our objective contradictions, for instance, regarding trade, for instance, uh, regarding uh, economic uh, elements. Uh, we cannot ignore the divergences between uh, the European Union and the United States. Uh, of course, the oh. idea I mean, we, the American we, is not a European no. formula. <laughs> well, we and we've already seen still under President Biden a failure to consult European partners on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, for example, a failure 
to consult the EU on intellectual property, on vaccines, and, and Mr. Biden is making it very clear that he wants to protect the American uh, worker from too much uh, competition, including European uh, competition. But, I mean, but you know that it's very different. I, I mean, his language is different. His language is diff very different, and his attitude, both his actual language and his body language. But aren't we seeing, in some respects, a continuation of American policy from Trump to Biden? Uh, you, you could say that we can see a continuation of American policy from uh, Obama to uh, Biden through Trump in certain, uh, in a certain dimensions. But it's very different to address difficult issues as friends, as we do with Mr. Biden, and to address these same difficulties when you are treated as enemies or adversaries like Mr. Trump usually did. But may, may I expose my, my personal thesis? My personal thesis is that um, we, uh, we would make a, a serious mistake in Europe, in Europe, in European Union, if we reduced our critical relationship to the relationship with the, the United States. We need a triangle, and the triangle is formed by the European Union, United States, and United Kingdom. That's the, the, the very Portuguese view. In a certain well, way, for us, Europe is not enough. Let's come on to Britain in, in a moment, but just before I leave the United States, I mean, it was during Mr. Trump's presidency that you know, Europe started to develop and proclaim its doctrine of strategic autonomy. And we can understand uh, why Europe needed to think more in terms of its self-reliance uh, during a Trump presidency. Are you not, are you saying to me that now that Mr. Biden is here and that new era has been ushered in, we don't need to emphasize our strategic autonomy uh, so much, or are you saying, well, we have to hedge our bets here. You never know, in 2024, we may have another Trump-like president, or indeed Trump himself coming back. So we better maintain uh, a degree of autonomy because we can't actually rely on the United States in the long term in the way that we previously assumed we could. I must say that um, as a Portuguese uh, minister and um, as a pro-European uh, politician, I don't need the adjective. I, I only need to say we have to enhance European autonomy. I don't need the word strategic because people can misunderstood this formula. When we speak of strategic autonomy, we are speaking mostly of um, economy. We are speaking uh, mostly of the provision of uh, public goods, basic goods. We consider as basic goods from uh, facial masks <laughs> to critical uh, communications networks, for instance. Uh, so I am personally, I avoid to use the expression strategic autonomy when I I'm speaking of uh, issues of security and defense because the strategic autonomy of Europe 
uh, in that domain is against third powers, but it is inside NATO. So it is in close alliance with the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. So as I am not a French, I can uh, skip the adjective strategic. But I, I, I understand your point and it's very important for us uh, with President Biden, as we did with President Trump, to say that um, we are partners. So it is not a question of uh, our American friends asking European Union or the United Kingdom, on which side are you? You are with us, following us, following our leadership, or you are against us uh, because you are with China or too complacent with China. This is not the way of putting things. Uh, we, we have a very solid, strong, a very important partnership with the United States, but we are partners. We are not followers. And the idea of the European autonomy, strategic in that sense, um, is, um, is this one, that uh, we need to reinforce right. the position of European Union as a global player, as you say. Well, given that you are Portuguese rather than French, uh, you, you have an age-old alliance uh, with the United Kingdom, one of your oldest, one of our oldest uh, alliances uh, in the world. Let me ask you quickly and lastly, because we've run out of time, Northern Ireland, and I'm a former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, I implemented the Good Friday Agreement when I was, when I was Northern Ireland Secretary, the, the complexity of Northern Ireland is now absolutely at the heart of the EU-UK uh, relationship. Tell me this, how well do you think the complexity of Northern Ireland and its communal relations and history is understood in European national uh, capitals? I'm not talking about the rights and wrongs of the Northern Ireland protocol, leave that aside. But do you think that, um, in national capitals across Europe, that the, 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 the complexity, the subtlety of the situation in Northern Ireland is perhaps uh, appreciated as, as much as it could be? No, uh, uh, we should pay more attention to Northern Ireland and to the Northern Ireland uh, issue. And of course, it is important to say to our British friends, you have to comply with the rules of the agreement we, you decided to sign with us, but it is not sufficient to say this. We have to understand, as you rightly said, the subtleties of the Northern Ireland experience. But one thing is clear or should be clear to all of us. The Good Friday agreements cannot be put in question directly or indirectly. Uh, you you have to preserve the kind of agreement, the kind of harmony, the kind of arrangement that in very difficult circumstances and benefiting from uh, the, 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 the important role, role of uh, several uh, statesmen uh, from uh, the United Kingdom, but uh, from both sides in Northern Ireland was, uh, were obtained. So, we have to keep this in mind. Uh, always 
thinking not as the chief of a sectoral department, but as politicians. It is not only trade, it is not only the circulation of people, it's, a, it's an history, it's an arrangement, in the, it's a circumstance, and we have to understand it. That was a very statesmanlike note on which to complete our conversation, which has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much uh, for your Thank you for the invitation. and for your insights. It's been, a, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. All the best. Bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.